Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, this is Mark Bianchi from the energy team at Cowan. In this episode of the Cowan Energy Transition Podcast, we're speaking with Chris Barkey, who's the chief technology officer of the TPS division at Baker Hughes. TPS stands for Turbo Machinery and Process Solutions and makes up about a third of Baker's revenue. The division has a lot to offer in hydrogen and carbon capture, and the company has a goal to double TPS revenue by 2030 through those growth markets. Chris joined Baker in 2020 after spending 30 years at Rolls-Royce. So Chris, thanks a lot for joining us. Before we get into the discussion, maybe you could give us a couple minutes on who you are and what you've been up to since you came over to Baker. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Mark. And, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, as you said, a 30-year career at Rolls-Royce. Um, my final role there was the Group Director of Engineering and Technology. So ran all of engineering for the company. That's about, you know, 17,500 engineers, about 1 million uh, of R&D team, you know, spend every year. Uh, I owned uh, functional strategy, product safety, technology strategy, and really had life cycle all the way from kind of sticky messes in test tubes all the way through to the in-service support of the fleet. And, and as a member of the executive, we covered civil aerospace, uh, defense aerospace, nuclear, marine, and the power systems business which used reciprocating engines. And, and during my career there, I spent time again in the military defense business, in, in the defense aerospace business, in the energy business, which is obviously very relevant to what we're talking about today, and the civil aerospace business. Um, I left in 2017. I did a chief exec of the uh, Henry Royce Institute that's named after the same famous engineer, but is nothing to do with Rolls-Royce. It's the UK National Institute for Advanced Material Science. Uh, and I did that for a while. And then I joined uh, Baker, as you said, at the end of 2020. So really excited to be here. I was encouraged to come, A, because there's you know some, some machinery that I recognize. Um, but also with the excitement and the challenge of the energy transition, the technology that that brings, the organizational challenge that, that brings with new skills and, and, and new techniques, um, and new functional requirements. Um, and obviously there's a big kind of culture change uh, going on in the company as well. So TPS, we do turbo machinery and process solutions. And my role covers, again, full life cycle from low technology readiness level technologies all the way through uh, product introduction into the market and I have a team who obviously supports all of our products uh, in in service um, and then ultimately disposal so pretty broad ranging role member of the executive exciting time within the company and, and delighted to be here great well <clears throat> yeah it, it is uh, it is certainly an exciting time I guess for um for those of us that, um, and I guess myself included, that don't know all the intricacies of, of the turbo machinery and process solutions business, can you just talk to us generally at a high level, um, what it involves, You know, what's the basic definition of the equipment and the applications that it's used for? Um, you have a leadership position in LNG, uh, and that's going to play a role in transition, but um, I'd like you to address that briefly, but also, you know, we're really interested to hear is kind of the, the capability that you have for, for hydrogen and carbon capture. I mean, my simplistic understanding is that 
really this equipment's all used for moving gases around, right? So you're compressing, you're expanding, you're combusting gases. And that's kind of what we do with, with methane right now. And it's what we're going to be doing with, with hydrogen and, um, and, and CO2 in the future. I don't know if that's a kind of layman's understanding of it, but curious if you could. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Right. You know, you're not bad. So we'll, uh, we'll look out to employers and engineer Mark, but you know, as you say, simplistically turbine machinery is a machines that transfer energy between a rotor and a gas or a fluid. Um, and that can go in both directions. So, you know, for example, a gas turbine, and, and again, my favorite description is, you know, a gas turbine is basically suck, squeeze, bang, blow. So we, we suck the air into the front of the engine, we squeeze it, we compress it. So the rotor applies energy into the, into the gas. Um, you know, the bang is where we inject uh, the, combustor, the combustible um, uh, fuel and, and create, uh, you know, combustion. And then the blow is the, the exhaust gases coming out the back of the, uh, the turbine. Um, and that gas then applies its own forces to the turbine, which then drives both the shaft through to the compressors, but also drives whatever equipment is on the back of the gas turbine. So uh, it could be a generator, it could be a, a compressor. Um, so again, when you, when you kind of take that to a different product, subset as, as compressors, again, either being driven by a gas turbine or being driven by an electric motor, for example, then the compressor as it turns and rotates is applying and transferring its energy into the, the gas that is then being compressed. So our product range, we have a whole range of gas turbines, we have heavy duty gas turbines, aeroderivatives that come from, you know, are derived from the, the, the engines that you see when you look out of, of your plane as you're flying on holiday around on business, and then light industrial uh, gas turbines as well. And we have probably about um, 5,000 gas turbines uh, as an installed base. And then obviously we have a range of compressors, both reciprocating compressors, centrifugal compressors, integrally geared compressors, and pumps that again, you know, kind of drive um, compression in a number of different industries. And, and as you said, Mark, we're, you know, we are um, leading in, in Baker Hughes as a, as a, uh, uh, in the LNG space. So if we look at today, there's about 490 million tons per annum, um, of LNG produced and I think Baker equipment's on about 450 of that so you know long history both as Nova Pignoni acquired by GE um, and and really we've become extremely dominant uh, in that in that space because of the quality of our equipment the reliability of equipment and the performance of our equipment so, yeah, so I guess hopefully that's the layman's uh, the layman's turbo machine uh, that, that's that's great uh, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the the competitive landscape and the differentiation. LNG is an example of an application where you're able to um, enjoy a, a leadership position because of your differentiation. But what is it about that differentiation that, that gives you the advantage? Is it, I think it has something to do with reliability, um, but I don't understand like why you're able to deliver on reliability. What is it about the equipment and the maybe the combination of compressor and turbine that um, that affords that? And then, you know, what are the other areas where you think you have a leadership position? And what are the other areas where, you know, you're not going to really chase after that because somebody else is good at it or it's maybe a commoditized part of the business? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think at the heart of it, as ever, is fundamentally world-class 
engineers, you know, producing highly competitive products, whether they be compressors that have, you know, great range, great efficiency, or gas turbines, as you say, with, you know, great performance, great efficiency, great reliability and availability. So that's kind of a baseline. Then there's a, you know, you have to wrap an incredibly, um, you know, professional business um, organization around that, both in terms of sales, in terms of, uh, you know, how you project manage. So, you know, customers want things delivered on time and to quality and with zero punch lists. Um, and, you know, obviously then transitioning into great support in the aftermarket, because, you know, the one thing about LNG is that reliability is really important because if you trip a unit and the LNG process goes down, the LNG process itself will take a while to get back up to speed. So making sure that those units run. So I think um, that's one thing, we have great products. I think our ability to integrate, you know, a great gas turbine with a great compressor and actually now as we're expanding more and more into the you know actually delivering entire lng trains including the refrigeration units we we have a, a, a very sound position as an as a as a solutions integrator working with our epc partners to make sure that we can deliver what the the customer wants and the reality is that you know, there are other competitors in the space and they're all good engineers as well and they have good products and, and um, you know, there's always this kind of arms race about power and efficiency and reliability and performance and fuel flexibility. And that's just the reality of living in our sort of product space. But I think, you know, the innovation that we have showed both internal to, you know, single elements of the, of the solution like the gas turbine and the compressors, so, you know, we've done a lot of innovation recently around our, uh, our compression sets where we can, um, you know, combine some of our design uh, styles, we can uh, change some of the materials, we can do some aerodynamics that allow us to not only make better efficiency, but do it in a much more energy dense package. And actually, in some cases, move the, the number of compressors that you need down from, say, three to two. So that gives you know, great advantage on cost. It gives great advantage on, on footprint. It gives great advantage on reliability and maintainability. So all of these things allow us to you know, keep, um, keep, keep innovating. Um, and I think that's key. Is, mm -hmm. is, so great product, great service, and continual innovation um, to make our customers a produce more LNG and actually get from the start of a project to the point where they're producing LNG faster. And certainly we're doing that today. And we've got a good track record, you know, introducing new machines like the LM9000, new compressor technology. And obviously that then starts feeding into the conversation we're gonna have in a minute around hydrogen and carbon capture and all of those things to help decarbonize, not just LNG, but this different parts of the industry. That, that's a great segue, right? Because one of the things that you're doing um, with air products, you have this, this hydrogen combustion. So 100% hydrogen combustion on air products, Alberta project. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious what, so I don't, I'm curious what the reference is for 100% combustion. How, how, how much uptime do you have doing that? What's the demonstration of doing 100%? Because my understanding is there've been, you know, when I look at what your peers have said, there's limited um, reference, you know, they're blending some portion of hydrogen, but it's not 100%. So 
it seems like a technically challenging thing to accomplish. Um, how did you get there? And um, you just talk to us about some of the technical challenges that, that you and the industry may encounter with that. Yeah, so I, you know, so I think, you know, first of all, we're not newcomers to the hydrogen space, you know, we, we've, I think the first burning of hydrogen and the first, you know, was, was, you know, 20 odd years ago, uh, the first treatment of hydrogen in a compression set was in, I think, 1962. So we've been compressing hydrogen for, you know, ne nearly, uh, you know, nearly 60 years. So I, I think we have experience. I think depending on which kind of product line you're looking at, whether you're looking at frames, whether you're looking at aeroderivatives, whether you're looking at the light industrials, there are, there are different kind of max hydrogen um, uh, experiences that we do have. But certainly at the smaller end, we do have, in 2008, we built the first turbine uh, in the world, which was a 10 megawatt unit uh, to run on 100% hydrogen at the, I think it was the Fusina hydrogen power project in, in Italy. So our smaller end certainly has that, that cap capability. Um, and I'll come back to the specific uh, around air products in a minute. As you go up in, in pressure ratio, um, then some of these combustion elements get a little bit harder. So, you know, when you look at the, the, uh, the aeroderivatives, for example, we certainly don't see that them having 100% hydrogen capability today. And we're going to grow those as we, as we you know, drive that. In particular, on the, um, the air product piece, uh, there, there is, you know, um, water um, injection as well, which, which makes it a slightly easier, but not much easier, um, technical challenge, and that helps to um, abate the uh, the NOx, which is which is one of the kind of the byproducts of, of burning hydrogen. Um, so I think you know we have a high level of uh, confidence in our ability to deliver that air products um, with good demonstration in the field, as well as a lot of uh, of time spent you know kind of on the rigs, and and we'll we'll develop those on the uh, LT16. Um, uh, engine, which is about a 16 megawatt unit. But hydrogen is, is as you said, is, is not the easiest of fuels. It's got its own set of challenges. And, and um, but obviously the, the opportunity and the benefit of burning hydrogen uh, in particular from, from the carbon perspective is, is very clear and undeniable. So, you know, if I talk about kind of the auxiliary systems, I mean, hydrogen is a, is a flammable fuel, you know, uh, you know, highly flammable. So making sure that you've got the auxiliary systems developed um, properly to make sure all the safety standards are in place in terms of how you detect, um, how you design for leakage um, to make sure that the, um, you know, that all low energy ignition sources are, are away from any hydrogen um, uh, potential areas. Um, so that's key. And obviously hydrogen as well has, has some interesting properties in itself in, in terms of how it interacts with uh, materials. So making sure that you have the right material selections, uh, either in some of the fundamental turbine machinery, because there's a there's a phenomenon known as hydrogen embrittlement, which makes some certain metals um, highly brittle. So making sure you pick the right materials, but also making sure you pick the right materials on things like seals, for example, to make sure that they don't deteriorate over time. I guess the other technical piece on hydrogen is, you know, um, when you burn it in the in the gas turbines, and there's definitely some things that you need to think about. Um, 
you know, the auto ignition temperatures of hydrogen and natural gas are reasonably uh, similar, but actually the, the, the flammability range of, you know, the kind of the percentage of hydrogen in air is much wider than, than other fuels. So it goes between about 4%. Um, so, you know, quite lean to about 75% where it, it is still extremely flammable. And the flame speed as well in hydrogen combustion is, is much higher than uh, with methane. So that gives you some, uh, there are phenomena known as flashback where the flame kind of comes back into the premixer. You've got combustion instability, which is where there's pressure pulsations in the, in the combustor, which we need to uh, be careful of. And actually the heat transfer coefficients of the combustion products fueled by hydrogen are slightly higher than natural gas. So, um, you know, making sure that the downstream equipment, the turbines, you know, have a good and useful life while still producing the power that we want them to produce. So um, it's certainly not a, not a, a straightforward fuel. Um, as you say, all of our competitors are, are, are developing. I think we have a very sound foundation from the experience that we have in the field and we'll continue to pursue that. And the, the air products um, project in Alberta is just one of those exciting uh, projects where we'll continue to develop our, um, our portfolio. So it sounds like there's some, at least on the on the size of the turbine, maybe there's some limitations today. You'll you'll maybe sort those out over time with technological enhancement. And then there's other limitations that you talked about from a, a safety perspective and and how the how the flame works and all that. Does does it do those items limit how broadly hydrogen combustion can be applied? Are there certain applications that um, we just it won't make sense, or certain geographies or climates where it might not make sense. I'm thinking about perhaps in the desert where there's a very different environment than what we're seeing where Alberta is. Maybe there's temperatures, maybe there's particulate that's in the air. Is there anything like that that you know might limit uh, how broadly we could see combustion adopted? No, I don't think so. I mean that you know that there are the, there are the fundamental thermodynamics of of gas turbines, which absolutely, you know, change the behavior depending on what the temperature is, in particular, the temperature and pressure of the air coming in the, in the front. But actually that, you know, the, the control laws of the, of the gas turbine will, will limit it to the pressures that we're trying to achieve and the temperatures that we limit the gas turbine to, to make sure that not only it produces the right power at the right efficiency, but also maintains the life and the reliability of the product. So, that there is no doubt that actually whether you're burning hydrogen or, or methane or natural gas, that, that actually the cleanliness of the air is important. The cleanliness of the fuel is critical, particularly as you go into kind of dry low emissions combustion. But that's, that's where we are today. There's nothing special about hydrogen there. So we need to make sure that our inlet filtration is appropriate. We need to make sure that our gas filtration, our gas cleanliness is appropriate. Um, but as long as we do those things kind of in line with what industry standards are, then, then I don't think we'll see any geographic or climate limitations to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Maybe switching over to compression. So, you know, as you think about just, I mean, any, any use of gas, right? If it's going to be put in a pipeline, probably has some degree of compression. And we start talking about hydrogen for things like fuel cells and onboard tanks for fuel cells, you need even more compression. So maybe if you could talk to us a little bit generally about the different levels of pressure that are involved there, you know, how, how Baker is involved in, in, in that compression. And, and you mentioned the embrittlement issue. 
as well. So what is that, how much does that affect kind of the, the challenges of, of doing compression? Yeah, so again, I, I think, you know, Baker Hughes is, is expanding our, our, trying to expand our leadership position in, in hydrogen compression as well. Again, as I said, I think our first hydrogen application was in 1962. I think we've got about, uh, of the kind of number of units I mentioned earlier, I think about 2,000 of them have a level of hydrogen compression in them. And I think we have the largest compression portfolio tailored to the hydrogen value chain. It's one of the reasons, again, as we talked earlier, we have a range of products and capabilities that allow us to play at all aspects of the hydrogen value chain, either the one that exists today or the one that will exist in the future, whether it be production, whether it be um, transportation, whether it be storage or whether it be utilization to produce power, for example. So I think we do, we do have lots of experience, but the, you know, the, the low volumetric energy density of hydrogen ambient conditions means that the sorts of storage pressures, when you compare it, for example, in, a, in an automotive you know, charging station to gasoline, is, is significantly higher. So, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, needs up to potentially 900, 900 bar, 1,000 bar, um, you know, for our products for, uh, in particular, in, in hydrogen storage. But when you look for the transportation piece, whether it's pure hydrogen or in ammonia, um, you know, we don't necessarily see a significant increase in the pressure compared to natural gas. So we still think those pressures are going to be in the kind of 60 bar to, to 100 bar uh, range. But we are, as, as I've said, upgrading a number of our compressors, both um, our reciprocating compressor line, in particular to get that, um, uh, that large flow uh, at 900 bar for kind of medium and large refueling station. And we continue to work on some of our pipeline compressors as well, but probably less, um, you know, pure development needed there. I think one of the areas that that we we are doing both for hydrogen and and kind of, if, if I call it traditional compression, if you like, is to, uh, you know, develop this high pressure ratio compression technology, you know, based on some of the new innovative um, rotor architectures. So we've got a product called the HPRC, high pressure ratio compressor, which you know, combines open and closed impellers, which achieve both pressure ratio and efficiency levels, which we believe are you know, industry leading whilst allowing us to reduce um, the size, um, make smaller and lighter components. And, and as I said earlier, can potentially start eliminating you know, one train in, in a train. And we're making that further step to saying, right, how do we apply that to a specific hydrogen-based version of the HPRC? Again, we're improving impeller aerodynamics, um, looking at getting higher strength materials that allow us to go to much higher tip speeds. Because if you think of something rotating quite fast, you know, the, the, the speed of the tip at the outer, outer diameter can get quite high up to kind of 600 meters a second. Uh, and obviously part of that is looking for materials with higher strength, but also looking for materials that have resistance to the hydrogen embrittlement um, challenge, uh, particularly with very high levels of hydrogen up to, up to pure hydrogen. 
uh, and that we're working on today as well. You know, uh, we recently kind of selected the material of choice for that uh, hydrogen uh, compression system. So again, not without its technical challenges, um, but an area where we can apply our experience and expertise and the innovation moving forward to be successful in that space. Yeah, I, I guess that that <clears throat> brings me to kind of the next topic I want to talk about. You have the collaboration with their products, so this is separate from the the award for Alberta, um, just so everybody's aware. But there's also a, a collaboration to to lower the cost of hydrogen compression, if I have it right, for um, for green hydrogen or just all hydrogen, I guess in general. But that that's a specific collaboration you have with with APD on that. Um, it sounds like that's essentially what it is. If I were to sort of rephrase it as just kind of improving efficiency, maybe lowering the the energy needed to um, to run the compressor, and then also being able to reduce the footprint of the compressor. So instead of having multiple trains, you have fewer than multiple trains. Yeah, exactly. So as you said, I think it was the middle of last year we announced that collaboration with Air Products, you know, who are one of the global leaders in hydrogen to to help develop that next generation of hydrogen compression that I just talked about. So all of those kind of features um, in the high pressure ratio compressor and the hydrogen specific version of that are part of that agreement. So we will provide that advanced compression technology, um, you know, into uh, the neon carbon-free hyd hydrogen project in uh, in Saudi Arabia. So that, coupled with the the um, the delivery of the LT16s in the uh, in the Alberta project in Canada, you know, we're we're those two products. We're really you know helping to drive with uh, our customer products, you know, equipment. Um, for the largest blue and green hydrogen projects that there are. And and that that neon project's pretty unique, right? It's the largest green hydrogen project that yep. that's out there. I mean, there's some stuff in China we don't know how yes. how real it is, but <laughs> but the, this one seems like it's pretty real. This one's pretty significant. So yeah. yeah so we're um, we're really excited and you know looking forward to de to delivering those uh, those units. Is there is there anything unique about um, delivering units for a big electrolysis project like that versus other um, other applications of of sort of the same idea. Like if I I'm thinking, you know, this thing's hooked up to renewable electricity. Um, are there intermittency concerns or anything that might go along with you know this type of project versus uh, I don't know an electrolyzer that's hooked up to the grid in some you know um, populated area or something like that. So, so I, I don't know the exact detail of, of, of the whole system of the NEON project, so I, I can't talk to that one. But certainly, you know, where, where you have that intermittency of, of uh, renewables in a green hydrogen project, you know, actually one of the things that Baker are trying to position for is to make sure that we can help in that part of the value chain as well. So, um, you know, if you've got solar, if you've got wind, um, then, you know, how do we help, you know, adding, um, you know, maybe backup gas turbines, small gas turbines to provide a level of backup to intermittency? How do we provide, you know, with some of our collaborations um, uh, around fuel cells? How do we provide, for example, um, battery uh, electrical storage services? And how do we help combine that into something where, you can deal with the intermittency through some kind of energy management systems. So yeah, it, it, that is always one of the challenges of, of you know, the pure green hydrogen to make sure that you have that 
continuity of the um, the electrolysis process. But yeah, lo lots of opportunities to do that. Um, some of which fit straight in the baking use space as well. Not only the compression and the gas turbine piece, but some of the other things that we're starting to to bolt on uh, with either internal technology development or through um, acquisition or investment. So last one I had on hydrogen, the leadership in LNG, which is basically taking gas, methane, and making it very cold. That's kind of the same idea with hydrogen, right? We're going to, there, there's ideas about liquefying hydrogen. Is, is your role uh, in hydrogen liquefaction, would it be similar? And, and should we think that you have you know, potentially a similar opportunity for, for market leadership there? Yeah, I think, so I, uh, the, the, on, the honest answer is yes. I mean, certainly hydrogen liquefaction for us is, is a really interesting potential market space. And we think that, um, back to our previous bit of the conversation, that we both have the products and some of the experience in liquefaction in general that, that would make us very viable, you know, in terms of compressors, expanders, you know, the valves bit of the business that's also sits within within TPS. Uh, and we're confident that that our technology will play, you know, a fundamental role in that scaling up of H2 liquefaction, um, uh, whether it be US in Europe or elsewhere in the world. I think the one thing that we'll see is that at the moment, probably, you know, you're going to look you want that liquefaction to help in the transportation of hydrogen, particularly via ships. I think when we look across all of the liquefaction piece, that that technology probably isn't as mature as we would want it to be either internally or externally, and is not at the required scale, in particular scale. So it probably needs to move from, I think we're thinking a kind of a current maximum size that we've seen around probably 30 uh, tons per day to, to at least 200 um, tons per day to make it economical. So at the moment, it, it's the, the economics of the liquefaction um, compared to other options, for example, like transportation with through ammonia, um, you know, it needs to kind of get over that economic hump. And, the, and then I think it'll be a really interesting space. Do, do you play, play at all or have anything that goes into, you mentioned ammonia. So when we think about just the process of ammonia and taking hydrogen and converting it into ammonia. Is there, is there compression involved in that or other kit that you guys are, are supplying into that, that part of the process? I mean, certainly we see, you know, we see a great future in clean ammonia. You know, if, if you think of the colors of hydrogen, you can, you know, they're kind of the same colors of ammonia, you know, and we see a lot of it around the, the decarbonization of existing ammonia production for fertilizers. We obviously see an opportunity there as a hydrogen carrier in, in, in pipelines, for example, uh, or as a fuel for, you know, hard to abate sectors like um, marine, uh, marine propulsion, for example. So I think we are starting to say, you know, obviously transportation, again, we go back to our, our, uh, our compression systems and, um, you know, reconverting ammonia back to, to hydrogen is quite an expensive um, process, you know, both in terms of money and in terms of energy. So it, I think it requires about 20% of the, the hydrogen energy that you get out, if you see what I mean. So that's not a good trade. But we are obviously looking in our roadmap to say, how can we burn, you know, without converting back to hydrogen, can we burn um, 
uh, ammonia either in furnaces or in our gas turbines to 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 support power production or or anything else so yeah certainly the ammonia piece is is very real and you know we're playing our part in that in developing technologies that can can fit that particular market as well great uh, maybe shifting over to to co2 and, and carbon capture i mean i guess kind of back to how we started the whole conversation my sense is you know your business is doing things with gases and just co2 is yeah. just another gas but maybe um how does CO2 different from methane if we're thinking about, um, you know, moving it around in pipelines and compressing it? Uh, you know, you talked about hydrogen having the embrittlement. Are there things that, you know, make CO2 a little more challenging or different from a, um, you know, transport storage perspective? Um, so I, I think, again, it, it depends. You know, I don't think you can necessarily separate the compression from the capture because it, you know, that not CO2 isn't always readily available as a pure stream, like, for example, from an LNG facility. So, you know, CO2 is, is a, you know, as you say, we've got lots of experience in compressing CO2. We've been doing it for an awful long time, uh, both on centrifugal compressors in our pumps. And, you know, we range from very small flow and high pressure reciprocating compressors up to kind of medium pressure and much higher flows with our uh, both barrel type and integrally geared compression. So, so we have lots of experience and, and we're very successful at it. You know, there are some, some interesting kind of features around CO2 in terms of the phase phase state of it. And certainly recently we've we've actually tested a supercritical CO2 compressor where you know you you get the temperature pressure right and it kind of it it turns into something a little bit like water, very quite dense, uh, and is, you know, you have to keep it very well controlled so that it stays in that supercritical state. So that will again give us some more uh, potential applications in supercritical CO2 engines and again in, in transportation. So um, I don't why think do we, anything... Why do you care about supercritical CO2? What is it? Why, why is that better than a, a gaseous form? It just, in some ways, it, it, again, it, it allows you to keep the density uh, at the right point, uh, which just allows a more efficient method of, of, of transportation. So again, that's, okay. that's kind of on the a bit lower technology maturity, but we're, we're, we're doing well and we're getting close to it. So. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, I guess, um, Baker more broadly has, um, tried to build out the CO, the carbon capture portfolio, right? There's, um, you acquired compact carbon capture. You've got some MOUs. I, I think you're kind of end to end capable right now. Correct me if I'm wrong of, of sort of doing a turnkey type of, of carbon capture project. Do you see a lot of those types of projects in the future? And you know, a, another company in this space is offering carbon capture as a service. Is that something that that you guys are are contemplating, or, or how should we think about the um, the potential there and interest from Baker? So I think there's there's this kind of a number of kind of levels to answer that question. So so one is that depending on application, depending on this this one where climate does does play a part, uh, Mark. Um, application, the um, concentration of CO2 in whatever kind of 
stream that you're trying to take the CO2 out of, capture it, you know, the footprint of a potential industrial commercial site, um, ambient temperature, all play, and the, the overall flow, all play a part in saying what is the optimum carbon capture technology. So I think certainly the way we've approached it is there is no single point solution that covers all of the potential variables, if you like. So we have, um, you know, we have a number of different technologies uh, available to us that we are, are at different levels of maturity from the chilled ammonia process, which is, you know, is a, is a post-combustion carbon capture that uses kind of a solvent formulation on on basically based on ammonia. Back to our ammonia question, and that's that's a pretty mature piece of technology. We've demonstrated TRL seven, which is the the kind of technology readiness level scale. We've got the mixed salt process, which is, is a slightly less um, mature, which again is a solvent blend, mainly around um, potassium carbonate and ammonia. Um, uh, and then, as you say, we've got uh, compact carbon capture, which is, is a rotating bed kind of absorber and desorber. So that's kind of much more um, turbo machinery, if you like, uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, but we think that will generate efficiency in the absorbing and desorbing, and in some ways will be solvent agnostic, and it'll allow us to, to, to make these things smaller, um, shorter, uh, smaller footprint, and, and hopefully, you know, extremely economic. And, you know, they all will apply to slightly different um, applications. So we, we certainly think um, the carb, compact carbon capture would be offshore because of its uh, smaller footprint, you know, some of the cement factories, waste to energy plants, for example, uh, and even shipping, um, where this may be viewed as, a, as an alternative to batteries or, or, or hydrogen power. So I think, you know, we're continuing to pursue maturing all of these technologies. And then we've got some really kind of interesting, kind of very low TRL level technologies that are actually, you know, taking pace something like electric chair for example where we've taken a 15 percent stake and that's a, a biomethanation process so you know there's there's single single um organisms um that act as a biocatalyst to synthesize methane to produce natural gas from streams of co2 and hydrogen so there are there are three pilot projects up to about one megawatt so they are um yeah they are maturing technology and, and we're hoping to to help them you know mature that and that will be another technique that will be appropriate in some places and not appropriate in others so you know we're really attacking it across multiple fronts and maturing a number of multiple technologies that will be applicable in the right place um your question on kind of services as a salute uh, you know carbon capture as a service i think as ever with a lot of our you know, commercial models, there are a number of them in a number of different spaces. And, and I, I wouldn't say that we are striving specifically for capture as a service. Is it one of the available options? And we wouldn't rule it out. That's true. It's, it, we certainly wouldn't rule it out. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping to get some of these technologies, you know, 3C, for example, we're, we're working on the TRL 6.7, which is kind of the key thing that we demonstrate uh, at scale and then we go to commercialization so we're looking to do that you know kind of trying to get that by the end of the year so as we start to really go and commercialize 
then we start to to refine and develop those commercial models of which capture as a service may be one but maybe one of a number i was hopeful that you could help us with kind of the cost to capture just at a at a high level cuz you know i think there's there's a huge range that i've seen um and i think it has a lot to do with the purity uh of the co2 coming out of you know whatever wherever you're capturing it so you know, at the low end, things like fermentation or gasification have a really pure stream of CO2. So um, it's, it's, it's highly concentrated and, and maybe a lower cost to capture. And then I think of like power generation, um, you know, coal or gas fire generation being somewhere in the middle. And then at the high end, you know, we've got this direct air capture, which we're trying to take CO2 out of the atmosphere where it's really, really diluted. Um, my general sense is the range for those are like, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to 50 bucks a ton to $500 or more a ton if we're up on the direct air capture stuff. But maybe from your experience, um, you know, where do you guys see those costs and, and what, what's the roadmap to getting lower? Uh, you know, where, where are the largest cost reduction opportunities in the whole process? Yeah, so I think, as, as you said, Mark, that the, the dollars per ton of capture is incredibly complicated and relies on a whole range of different assumptions. As you said, it's, it is, it is about the concentration of CO2 in the flu or whatever you're trying to capture it from. Um, but, but also, you know, depreciation period, tax regime, equity to debt ratio, you know, IRR, and then some of the scale effects of, are you talking big plants or, or, or small plants? So, um, you know, we continue to look at the cost. Um, I think, you know, we, we see, you know, small and mid-scale carbon capture projects probably around the $130 a ton at the moment. I think we certainly see that that 50 to, to, to 90 tons is probably some of the incentives that you need to start building a robust market over the next 10 to 15 years. I think we certainly, when I look at 3C, for example, we, we certainly believe we can drive the costs down below 100. Um, and certainly we've got a target to kind of that $130 a ton that we talked about earlier, you know, try and cut that in half. So that's the sort of range that we're looking at, but certainly sub hundred, you know, is, is achievable. So with some of the technologies that we're developing, like, like 3C. And what would you say are the top, if you had to say the top two or three applications that, that you think you'll be, um, using the, the compact carbon capture and, and kind of the current kit for? Is it is it stuff like, um, you know, blue hydrogen where, um, you know, maybe there's a really pure stream of, of, of CO2 coming off of it? Or what's the, what do the typical applications look like? I, th I think a range. I think, as I mentioned before, that certainly we see a, a good opportunity potentially offshore because of the footprint, um, the footprint benefit. But but actually across a wide range of uh, industrial applications, you know, cement factories, uh, biomass power plants, you know, reformers, steel mills, refineries, you know, uh, and as I said, shipping is, is an interesting one where, you know, again, if you can get them small enough and the footprint enough, then, then it can maybe be a, a sensible alternative to, to the full electrification, if you see what I mean. So, so I think there's a, there's a, a full range um and particularly in that kind of small to medium you know industrial uh, applications mm -hmm. great 
I really just had kind of one more, and this is something that um, we're kind of asking everybody to to provide, and it, it's we're asking for a prediction. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's a prediction that's that's several years out. It's we're, we're not going to hold you accountable for it. The the purpose really is to just kind of give you an opportunity to provide something that's thought provoking. You're you're looking at this whole world from um, you know kind of the other side of the table than than we are as investors. Um, so just you know, any thoughts on what what what's a prediction out, out in the next you know three five seven years that that people might might not have on their radars. So so I'm. Uh... So rather than picking a specific technology, let, let, I'll give you an insight into the way Chris Barkey's mind thinks through through that, my that's career, what we're looking for my career actually. So, you know, there there are there are some kind of undeniable truths out there and some megatrends. You know, so we have a global trend in population growth, we have a global trend in GDP growth, and and when you add, you know, one one plus one equals you know, fundamentally a bigger middle class with disposable income. And that disposable income tends to be then spent on things that require energy. So, you know, population growth and GDP growth gives you energy demand. So I don't think they're going away. You know, obviously you might have some economic or, or things like COVID that, that put blips in the energy demand, but it's, it's kind of on, on the rise. And the other one obviously is climate change is an imperative that is not going away and you know i've you know people said why have you been an engineer your whole career uh, and it really is down to a i enjoy the technology and i enjoy the engineering but i've always enjoyed the the, the fact that you can actually do something that has a true social impact so yes you need regulations you need offsets you need trading but that won't solve the challenge of of kind of net zero the only thing that's going to solve it is engineering and you know engineering has to solve it and a bit like the conversation on carbon capture there is no real big bang single solution yeah maybe in 50 years with nuclear fusion maybe uh, but you know it's going to be a combination and a portfolio of solutions and the people who can bring a portfolio of products across a whole value chain are going to be successful but actually no one's going to be successful on their own so we need investment in infrastructure uh, as well as kind of point solutions to some of the challenges we've got and i think we're already seeing it now that collaboration you know across the whole value chain is absolutely essential and you see some of the things that that are in the public domain that we're doing um, just proves that that collaboration is probably going to have to be higher than ever before. Uh, and I genuinely believe, you know, there are, there are a number of kind of energy technology companies out there. And I, I genuinely believe that Baker Hughes will be at the forefront of that. And that's one of the reasons that I, I decided to come and join them, uh, to be honest. You know, I think the hydrogen economy will grow. There was a real focus probably 10 years ago on the electrification piece across the whole economy, whether it's aerospace, automotive, rail, maritime, and, and electrification will continue. But I think that the hydrogen economy is coming more into focus. So yes, questions on infrastructure, questions, do you do large scale production and transportation, or do you go 
near point production, near point of use production? I think those are still you know, fascinating questions and, and are always a, a good place for debate, but you will see hydrogen appearing more and more. And electrification at the end of the day only works with electricity. If you so some, something has to produce the electricity. So the other prediction is that, you know, I think natural gas will continue to play a significant role. And therefore, some of the other technologies that we're developing will have to be done to make sure that, that natural gas plays its role, but plays its role in a in a clean, in a clean manner. So uh, there's my Great. prediction. Great. Well, that that's a great place to leave it. And if um, I could have lottery numbers, then I, I, I you know, do that as well, but I, I can't. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that next time. Yeah. Chris, thanks so much. This has been great. Really appreciate it and uh, and look forward to, to catching, a, get, catching up sometime soon. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.